If you would, take your Bibles tonight and turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, and we'll be reading from there in just a moment. Well, we've come to the last night, and you are to be commended. You've survived, and I'm thankful that you have given me your time this week. I've just had a great time. It was just like I said on Sunday, I've always felt comfortable here. It's one of the places that I, for some reason, just kind of feel right at home. And and I guess that has everything to do with you. And I appreciate so much every act of kindness that you've shown toward me uh, this week. For those of you that have fed me this week, that has been outstanding. A preacher's got to eat while he's gone. And, and uh, there's no shortage of it in gospel meetings. And I just appreciate you opening up. Uh, your homes and your hearts to me uh, this week. I want to thank the elders for their confidence in inviting me to come. I don't take that for granted. It still means as much to me today as it did the very first time I was ever asked to go anywhere. And I just appreciate that so much. Appreciate the Bunnings and the work that they do here. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not often that somebody's at a place as long as uh, David and I are at respective places. We're running about the same length of time in the congregations that we're in. But uh, when you get a good fit, it's a great thing. You know, you know what you're going to get. It's comfortable. It's like an old pair of shoes. You know, you just slide right into them. They feel great, and you, you just want to wear them as long as you can. And uh, I hope that you'll be able to do that with David and, and that you'll continue to, to do good things together in the kingdom. I want to say also that another special part of this meeting for me this week has, has been the children. Uh, your children are well-mannered. They're just full of joy and excitement, and, and they're encouraging. They came up to me and talked to me after the services this week, and, and that's not always very usual at places. And I just want you to know, I want these kids to know that I love you, and I, I just thank you for the way you've made a difference to this fellow this week, and, and you just keep doing what you're doing in encouraging the preaching of the gospel. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving out uh, something. If I think of anything else, I'll be sure to say it. But those are the things that I want to say. I bid you Godspeed. And uh, if you're ever in the Athens area, come see us. We'll leave the light on for you. And as I sometimes say, we'll treat you in so many ways, you're bound to light one of them. Uh, So uh, just come see us whenever you have the opportunity. The psalmist says in Psalm 90 and verse 10, The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, and it is soon cut off, and we fly away. We sometimes sing that song, Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. This verse speaks of a lifespan being 70 years old. Average is still about 71.5, even though we've got people living a lot longer. That's still about the average across the board. So I want to ask you tonight, how old are you? And if for some reason God has granted you exceptional strength and you live to see 80 or maybe a little beyond, how much time would you have left? Could a number of you say that you kind of feel like you're already living on borrowed time? There's one thing we know in every bit of this, is that regardless of how long you live, the clock is running, and time is running out. And that time can run out a whole lot sooner than you think. Turn to 2 Kings now, chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. And we're coming to the days of Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he gets shocking news in the midst of his sickness in 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then he turned his face toward the wall. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, remember now, O Lord, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart. And I've I've done what was loyal and good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I suppose that many of us would have too. Verse 4 says, then it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him and said, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. What great news that was. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And so they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord, which the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or shall the shadow go backward 10 degrees? He's speaking of a sundial. And Hezekiah answered and said, it is an an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. That's what he's asking for, the unusual, the miraculous, if you will. Let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. You know, we read that, but do you realize what's involved with that? I can just sort of see the creator of the universe reaching out and grabbing hold of this globe and going, as the shadow moves 10 degrees in an opposite direction of what you would expect it to. Could it be that although the Lord has not made it known to you, tonight could be the very last night that you spend on this earth? Maybe tomorrow. Maybe this coming Sunday. Regardless of that, if that were the case, let me ask you, would you need to set your house in order? And when the Bible says that, it's not talking about tidying up the house. It's talking about getting everything in your life where it needs to be, for you shall die and not live. Set your house in order, God said to Hezekiah. The thing is, God told Hezekiah, but don't expect him to tell you. There will be no indications. There will be nothing really that is said to you by the Lord. He turned the clock back 15 years for Hezekiah. It gets 15 more years, but you know what soon happened after that 15 years? He still died. He went the way of all the earth. And so the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 21 that Hezekiah rested with his fathers and then Manasseh his son reigned in his place. And so what we know tonight is that the clock is running and that it will end. And what we do not know is when. We don't know when. What I want to spend our time doing tonight in a very simple lesson is I want to talk about some things that we need to do because time is running out. Time is running out, first of all, to learn God's will. You ever heard somebody say, ignorance is bliss? 
Or maybe they say something like this, you know, well, what you don't know can't hurt you. I want to tell you, whoever said that didn't know what he was talking about. That doesn't even hold true in physical things alone. How many people have died in houses where they did not know it was on fire? I have an uncle that I never knew, my mom's brother. During the night, some years ago, many years ago, evidently what was happening was that they had a gas uh, heater in their bedroom. And it must have been gradually depleting the oxygen in the bedroom. It's requiring more and more oxygen. It's pulling more and more oxygen in a very tightly sealed room. And uh, evidence was that maybe he knew, woke up and knew that something was terribly wrong. Maybe even realized he was already in danger. His wife they found dead in the bed. She never moved. He's found on the floor very close to the, to the heater. He realized he was in trouble, but it was too late. Absolutely too late. What he didn't know did hurt him. What he didn't know hurt his wife as well. Some time ago I was reading in the newspaper and I saw in Mobile, Alabama that there was a boy that just fell off the back of a, of a, a boat out on an excursion that some were taking out there in the river. Just fell off the back and just sunk and went under. And sometime later they found his body. Their determination upon examination with the autopsy revealed that he had carbon monoxide poisoning. No doubt what's happening is he's sitting on the back of the boat. There is carbon monoxide that is somehow escaping and he is gradually overcome by it and he just falls off the back of the boat. He didn't know it. Never, never understood what was going on. What he did not know did hurt him. See, that doesn't even hold true in physical things that what you don't know can't hurt you. How many people have been killed by guns that weren't loaded? It, it, that gun wasn't loaded. Well, yes, it was, but you didn't know it. And so we see it over and over and over again. Uh, my Uncle Thomas uh, was a man of many hats in my hometown. He was the newspaper editor. He was the fire chief. He was the coroner. Uh, he was a preacher. He wore all these hats. And while he was serving as coroner, he got a call to a place where a man had died. And I never will forget him telling this story. He found the man in his bedroom lying flat on his back across his bed. My uncle Thomas noticed that he was holding a book. And he had his thumb. You know how you sometimes do? You just kind of hold your place there with your thumb, kind of hold it open like that. And he thought to himself, you know, now this is going to be interesting. Whatever this man is holding in his hands... Whatever this, this shows is probably the last thing he had on his mind before he died. So he went over there and he, he just pulled the book out from his fingers. And he looked at it and what it was, it was a medical book. And he had opened to a page about heartburn. He's on the wrong page. The man was suffering a heart attack. Didn't know it. And what he didn't know, again, indeed, hurt him. So it doesn't hold true even in this life. But it also certainly doesn't hold true in spiritual things that what you don't know can't hurt you. Ignorance can hurt you when it comes to your soul. And if a man can be saved in ignorance, what I need to do is I just need to stop preaching now. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it be better if you can be saved by not knowing them? Just shut up. Don't say anything because if you say something, then they know and then they're in trouble.
But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, don't go so they won't know. He said, you go and you preach the gospel to every creature. Ignorance will not save people. Somebody says, well, do you think people are going to be lost because they haven't heard the gospel? What I say is, they're not going to be lost because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to be lost because they're in sin. (laughs) We're going to take the gospel. And for that matter, I don't know of anywhere that there's a place like that. Preachers that I've talked to, and I've talked to some extensively that have gone to places, and they'll tell you they've gone some places, and they were surprised when they got there that they had their translation of the Bible already. I don't know where those places are that people talk about. But it still doesn't change the fact that ignorance will not save a man. Turn to Acts 17 and verse 30. In Acts 17 and verse 30, Paul has gone to the city of Athens, Greece. Mars Hill. He's addressing those people, and it must have been a thing that very easily could have been intimidated, except when you're the Apostle Paul. And he says to them in Acts 17 and verse 30, as he talks about all these idols that they were worshiping, he said, I want to declare to you the God that you don't know anything about. I saw an inscription on a particular altar that said, to the unknown God. And I tell you, that's who I want to talk to you about, the God you don't know. The only one that's real, the one that holds your breath in his hand, the one in whom you live and move and have your very being. And he pointed out in Acts 17 and verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. God has been somewhat forbearing with this in times gone by. But now, it says in verse 30, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all By raising him from the dead. Ignorance won't save you. And time's running out to learn God's will. You can't serve God without knowing his will. And let me tell you this too. That will is not revealed by a fishing pond or a tree. I've had people to tell me, I want to tell you, I can get as close to God as you guys can. In fact, I can get closer than you can. And they're talking about being out there in nature. Well, I want to tell you, I love that. I have written for years about the things that you can learn in God's creation. Yo, you can learn that there's a great power. You can learn there's a great intelligence. You can learn that there's great uh, creativity and so many things that just scream out to you that there is an eternal God of great power who did all this. It'll teach you that much. But you're never going to learn what you must do in order to be saved without studying the Word of God. A tree won't tell you that. And a fishing pond won't tell you that. It'll only take you so far. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, a passage we have read over and over and over again in our Scripture, stresses the need for us to be diligent in our study of the Word of God. To be able to work it, to know it, to understand it. To be able to handle it aright, to handle it properly. 2 Timothy chapter 2 And verse 15, it says, be diligent. The King James Version says study, but it's really the idea of giving diligence. To show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You got to study. How many of you, if you were facing major heart surgery, let me go even further. What about a major brain surgery? And you go and, and uh, you get there and you talk to your doctor. Somebody recommended him for some reason. And you, or, or at least maybe they knew of him. They knew he, had, he was uh, kind of thinking about doing some of this kind of stuff. And you get there and you say, uh, 
Doctor, how many of these uh, brain surgeries have you done? And he says, well, actually, I've never done one, but I've always wanted to try. (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I'm out of there. You can't practice medicine. You can't be that kind of doctor without studying. A lawyer can't practice law if he's ignorant of the laws. And a Christian cannot practice Christianity if he's ignorant of God's word. We have to study. Now, here's my question. How much time have you got left? How much time have you got left to learn God's will? And I'll tell you this. Some of the best Bible students that I know are people who could kick themselves for all of the years that they wasted when they could have been studying the Word of God and now they're trying to make up for lost time. And I want to tell you, you can do that. You can make a lot of ground in a hurry, but oh, what they would give if they had not wasted so many years. The exciting thing to me is that you can know what the Apostle Paul knew. In Ephesians, the third chapter, beginning in verse 3, Paul is telling us, you can know everything that I know. In Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 3, he says, How that by revelation, that is by the revelation of God, he made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in a few words. So Paul is saying here, there was this great plan of God that for years wasn't revealed, but now it has been revealed. He shared it with me, and what I am doing is I am now writing it down that when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He's saying you can be right where I am. You can know what I know. You can be as pumped as I'm pumped about what Jesus has done to save us from our sins. You folks can know Jesus just like Peter did. I'm all the time trying to stress that you can walk those streets with him. You can sit on the mountaintop with him. You can hear his preaching. You can see the miracles that he performs. You can hear him say, peace, be still. And there's just calm. You can do that. You can go to the scene and feel the moment and experience the moment and hear everything and see everything that Peter and Andrew and James and John and all of them saw. You can walk with Jesus on the pages of Scripture. What I'm telling you is that whatever time you have left, don't waste it. And I surely want to say this. Don't let stagnation set in. Don't ever allow yourself to get stagnant. It can be easy for preachers to do that, especially preachers that have been preaching a while. I always used to say that I wanted to be at the top of my game in my 50s and 60s. Seems like I'm going backwards instead of forwards, though. But I don't want to get stagnant. I I want to do all I can. I want to stay fresh. I want to be studying I want to be producing as much as I ever have. That's the attitude that we've got to have. I remember one time asking Bob Waldron, who I respect greatly, one of the, one of the greater minds, I think. And, and he'll tell you that when Sandra and I first got married, he said she knew more of the Bible than I did. He had to make up for a lot of lost time. But I asked him, I said, Bob, I said, what is the key to just to really staying strong in where you are with God's word. And his answer was, force your mind to do what it does not want to do. You ever notice sometimes in a Bible class, especially if you've got older people, you say, now what we're going to do now, we're going to memorize some verses this quarter. And they go, oh! 
It's like it's just killing them. Don't make us do it. Memorize. But what he says is force your mind to do what it does not want to do. I once read this. Hell begins on the day when God grants us a clear vision of all that we might have achieved, of all the gifts we wasted, and of all that we might have done that we did not do. When God shows you what you could have done and you wasted it, that's hell. And then you've got all the Bible stuff that goes along with that, of the pain and the agony and the misery as well. Several years ago when Brother Lynn Hedrick passed away, his brother spoke at his funeral and he said, Lynn always wanted to go to another level. And he said, today he has. That's the idea. Another level, another level, another level, another level, another level. That's what we want to do. Somebody once said, I'd give the world if I could just know the Bible like him. And somebody hearing that said, well, that's what he gave. We're going to have to give up a lot. We might wear out the seat of our pants in studying to learn the will of God. How much time have you got left to learn God's will? Now, let me ask you this. How much time have you got left to obey God's will? You're not going to be saved without obeying it. I rejoice in hearing of the two who obeyed the gospel yesterday. I'm thankful for the kindness and the love and the mercy and the grace of our Lord that was abundant toward them and the power of God's word, just a simple reading of God's word to touch people's hearts. In Hebrews, the fifth chapter in verse 9, Hebrews 5 and verse 9 says that Jesus, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. You know, when I was young, there were verses that just kind of terrified me when they would read them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 is one of those verses, just the very reading of it, where it would talk about the Lord is coming again. And uh, that would be read, and there would be forceful preaching in regard to it, saying the Lord is coming in flaming fire. That's a Lord that a lot of people don't want to talk about. It's a Lord that's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? On those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what's going to happen? If you don't obey the Lord Jesus Christ... Vengeance is coming. And I used to emphasize the latter part of that a lot about not obeying. But you know the vast reason why most people are going to be lost? It's that first part. They don't know God. They have created their own God. I've had people tell me, well, that's, my, that's not my God. And I'm like, well, well, who is your God? And what they've done is instead of realizing that they have been created in God's image, they're trying to create God in their image the way they want him to be. And that's not the God of the Bible. We've got to learn what the God of the Bible says. How much time do you have left to obey God's will? Turn to Luke 12. Do you remember this rich fool? (laughs) I've often thought about it. It's a bad way to be remembered. How would you like for people throughout all time to call you the rich fool? Well, that's what he's referred to as. We read his story. And he wasn't a fool because he was rich. He was a fool because 
He had misplaced values while he was here on earth. He was into all the wrong stuff. He didn't say a thing about God. He didn't say a thing about other people. God was left out of it totally, and his time ran out. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 16, notice how I read this. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, what shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will. Somebody once said he had a bad case of eye strain. Yeah, there's a lot of I and my's in there, isn't it? And then he says in verse 19, I will say to my soul. And by the way, that's the only one he got right. He's going to take that with him. That is him. That's what will last for all eternity. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods. Listen to this. Many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You hear that? Many goods laid up for many years. And let me tell you what God told this guy. He said, let me tell you something, buddy. You don't have years. You don't have months. You don't have weeks. You don't have days. You don't even have a full day. This night, your soul will be required of you. And then who will these things, those things be which you have provided? And so is he who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich toward God. Thou fool, God said. His time ran out. You know, sometimes it's exciting when time runs out. Here's a man who's maybe been an inmate for a long time. He's paid his debt to society. And finally, his time runs out. They let him out. Exciting. Or you're watching a very tense ball game and your, head, your team is ahead by one point And the crowd starts counting down. Five, four, three, two, one. In fact, we want the clock to hurry up sometimes. And we're just so excited. Time ran out. That's all right if you're playing a ball game. But if we're talking about eternity and we're talking about your soul... It's not always the best thing in the world when your time runs out. Can you imagine the terror in the end? The terror. Whether it be the day of your death or whether it be the Lord's coming, when you're not on the winning team, you're not saved, and time runs out. I want to tell you, that's about as horrible as it gets. Because now eternity is going to begin. Eternity is going to begin. In a place of torment. And this time the clock will not stop. You ever tried to think about eternity? You ever been just riding down the road and had a little bit of time and your mind just kind of got to thinking about eternity? I've done that a few times. But every time, I, every time I do that, every time I get on that, after a while I smell something burning. I'm short-circuiting in my brain. I trip a breaker. <laughs> I, just, I just can't get my head around it. On and 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 on. Everything I've ever known had an ending. It's all I've ever experienced. But it doesn't change the fact that I believe that there's a such thing as eternity. Back home, I, I do this quite often. We have a little marker board, and I'll just draw a line all the way across the board. It runs off both sides. 
And then I go to the middle of that line and I put a dot. Now, if you're sitting where the Bunnings are sitting, you, sitting, you can see the dot. But I normally ask people back in the back, can you all see the dot sitting back there? Can you see the dot on that line? And everybody goes, uh-uh, I can't see it. And you can't. And my point is, that little dot represents your time here on earth. That dot's your whole life here on earth. But when you have spent enough time in eternity, it'll be just a blip on the radar. You won't even be able to see it compared to eternity. Are you going to waste all of eternity? Are you going to risk all of eternity in the time that you have with that dot? Time's running out to obey God's will. Time's running out, though, also for the erring Christian to repent. You know, there's a story in the Bible that just rips my heart out. It's one of the most riveting I think I've ever read. It's in Luke 15. Jesus talked about a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of his sons said to his father, Father, give me all that belongs to me. And basically he's saying, I'm out of here. Just give me my stuff or give me what belongs to me. And the father, I guess he did what some fathers do, just make him learn the hard way. He divided to them their livelihood. Not many days after he goes off into another land, he's got all his friends, no doubt. And the Bible says he wasted his life on prodigal living. You can just imagine all the sinful things that he's doing. And finally, I got this wonderful freedom. And he's out there doing all of that stuff. Until one day, the Bible says there was a great famine. And everything he had was gone. And I often ask myself, wonder where his friends are now. Everybody loves you when you got it all. But now he has nothing. He gets him a job taking care of pigs. Not the best job for a Jewish guy. Here he is feeding pigs. And the Bible says he gladly would have eaten the pods that the swine ate. And nobody gave him anything. And in the midst of the slop... He says, how many of my father's servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. The Bible says he came to himself. You know what that means? He hadn't been himself. You ever known somebody that just changed completely, and you just say, that's not the same guy I once knew. That's not the same woman I once knew. And somebody said, this might have been the best money he ever spent. Because when he started, he said, give me. When he came back, he's saying, make me. Make me like one of your hired servants. His father sees him coming. He rushes to him, runs and falls upon him, falls upon his neck and he weeps. He says, kill the fatted calf. Bring a purple robe. Put a ring on his hand. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found and they all began to be merry. And yet sometimes I hear people's parents even defending they're somewhat grown-up kids by saying, well, you know, everybody's got to sow their wild oats. Didn't you sow your wild oats? All I know is that when this young man sowed his wild oats, the Bible says he was lost. He's in trouble. And he needed to repent, and thank God he did. What about you? Have you wandered from the truth? Don't think for a minute that I believe that every time I preach that all the people that are here are here. <laughs> that they're really with the Lord. Sometimes there's people who have still managed to sit in a pew, but they have wandered far from the Lord. 
in the way they do things on a daily basis. Do you need to come home? In James, the fifth chapter, verse 19 and 20, I want you to consider what, what, what awaits you. In James 5, verse 19 and 20, it says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I once had a person that I was studying with, a, a person in a denominational background, a preacher, in fact, and I was pointing out this passage to him. And he said, oh, oh, no, that's not talking about, that's not talking about his soul being lost. When it says that if you turn him back, you'll save a soul from death, he says what that means is, is that God is getting ready to take his life. And, and by you turning him back, you keep that from happening. God's ready to take his life. I said, hold on just a minute. Now, you say he's going to take his life, but he's, and then he's going to take him on to heaven to be with him, right? He said, yeah, that's right. I said, do you mean to tell me that God is saying, I can't stand the way you're living down there, but I'll take your life and bring you on up here with me. You'll be just what we need in heaven. No. When the Bible talked about saving a soul from death, it was talking about the thing the Bible calls the second death. Remember I told you last night that when the spirit separates from your body, you're dead physically. The second death is when your soul is separated from God for all eternity. Revelation 28 talks about that second death. Revelation 21 and verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral... Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I'll tell you what the erring need to do. The erring need to repent. Jesus said in Luke 13 and verse 3, I tell you, nay, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. In verse 5, he doubled up and he said, I tell you again, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. I remember hearing David Hartzell say when he was alive and preaching, he said, when the Lord tells you something one time, you better listen. If he tells you twice, you show enough better listen. When he doubles up, it's a verily, verily. <laughs> Not that it wasn't true the first time, but he stamped it twice. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. I want to tell you, I don't have a hard time understanding that. Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. He said, it's the parts I do. <laughs> and I can understand that part. If I don't repent, I'll perish. If I'm astray from God. Don't be like the man who said, I'm coming back. Just leave me alone. I'm coming back. When I get all straightened out, I'm coming back when I get all straightened out. And so sure enough, one day they rolled him down the aisle. And they opened his casket. And there he was. All straightened out. Don't wait till then. That's too late. How much time do you have left to repent and come back to God? Let me move to this matter. Time's running out to train our children. Our children don't come programmed. 
They're not programmed. They're not robots. God gave them free moral agency. That's why I love it when little Adeline hops up in my lap and says, Gandandy, I love you. Oh, that feels good. But if she was somehow able to get up in that lap and say, Gandandy, I love you, it wouldn't mean a thing. That's a robot. God made us free moral agents. We're not programmed. We have to be trained. And the Bible says that if our children are going to go right, they're going to have to be trained right. You all know the verse, Proverbs 22 and verse 6. It says, train up a child. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The only hope we've got is for them to be trained in the way that they should go. Are your children ready? It's not my intent, well, maybe it is, to be dramatic. I knew that clock had started. I've been watching it for a while now. Because I have to set it a long time before services so nobody sees me do it. And I also have to know about when I want it to go off. I knew it was going to go off. Did you know it was going to go off? You know, there's things that are a whole lot, not a whole lot bigger than that. Maybe connected to something else that can blow this building to the ground. If that had been a bomb, would you have been ready to meet the Lord tonight? What if it wasn't a bomb that brought about your death? What if it was a trumpet blast? Just interrupted my sermon. And we hear this trumpet blast that reverberates across the heavens. I mean, I grew up in a, an early a life when we used to hear sonic booms. When uh, jets would break the sound barrier. And I mean, when they did it, it would scare you out of your skin. What if it was a trumpet blast and all of a sudden you look and there he is? Would you be ready? Time ran out. Maybe that gives you just a little bit of a feel for what Jesus said when he said, when I come, I come as a thief in the night. When you least expect it. Let's continue on. Thank God it's not the end of time yet. Are your children ready to stand up to a drug-crazed world? Are your children ready to handle the pressures that come sometimes with dating? Are they ready to face the peer pressures that sometimes come with the public school system of the prom and dancing and drinking? That night has been called one of the dangerous and most dangerous nights of the year. Are they being taught in your home the Word of God? Do you make sure that your children are at Bible class to hear the Word of God taught? You know, the Catholics say that if you will give them a child for seven years, they'll have him the rest of his life. They know the value of early training. How old is your child? How much time do you have left to train them? Time's running out. And the thing is, you can't start over. Can't tell you the number of times I've had parents to come out after sermons on parenting or child rearing. 
Sometimes they'll come out with tears running down their cheeks and they'll tell me I'd just give anything if I could just do it over again. You know, one of the things I like about computers is that every once in a while it'll get jammed up and they have this little, little reset button and it'll reboot and kind of bring you back and you can go back to work, you know. Our kids don't come with reset buttons. If you mess up royally, there's no reset. You got one chance to get it done. You got one small frame of time to get it done and get it done right. And it's important that you get about that business. You have to do it now. Ephesians chapter 6, you've heard it all your life again. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up. It's referring to the whole course of their upbringing. Bring them up along the way in the training, in the instruction, and the admonition of the Lord. My last point tonight is is, time is running out for others to be taught. Years ago, I came across a piece. It says, There is a legend that recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on earth. Even in heaven, he bore the marks of his earthly pilgrimage with its cruel cross and shameful death. The angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for men down there. I did, he said. And continued Gabriel, Do they know all about how much you love them and what you did for them? Oh, no, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed and said, well, what have you done to let everybody know about your love for them? Jesus answered and said, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn still tell other people about me. And my story will spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I've done. Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff men were made of. He said, yes, but what if Peter, James, and John grow weary? What if people who come after them just forget? What if way down in the 21st century, people just don't tell others about you? Haven't you made any other plans? And his answer was, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. And I know that's just a legend, but it reflects the truth. Jesus hasn't made any other plans. We're not going to get Peter, James, and John to come back and do their job. They did it. They did their job. They preached it to the whole creation. What are we doing? He's counting on us, people. Who's going to do it? If not you, who? Go ye means go me, somebody once said. i got to do what I can to bring other people to Christ. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized will be saved. As we wrap up tonight, I want you to turn with me to Romans 13 and verse 11. Romans 13 and verse 11. Romans 13 and 11 is a great verse. It says, know this. Do this, knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Tony, isn't that a great thought? I don't know how much time I have, but I know this. I'm about 55 minutes closer to Jesus than I was when I started this hour. With every moment that passes, my salvation is nearer 
than when I first believed. That's a wonderful thought. You know, we talk about death, and most of us know that it's coming, but one day it's going to knock at the door, and it's going to say, I'm here, and I'm here for you. Will you be able to say, like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I like one preacher who said, there's a whole lot of difference in coming to the end of your life and being able to say, I have, I have, I have. Or having to say, oh, I wish I had. But because Paul could say, I have, he said in verse 8, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. We need to be able to say, I have. Rather than, oh, I wish I had. I've got a preacher friend, Tim Sutton is his name. He had a, has a daughter named Melanie. When Melanie was still at home, they had moved out in the country. Brand new house. Not long after they moved there, Tim had left and all, everybody had left except Melanie. And Melanie said that she was in the house and she, all of a sudden she looked out and she saw a car coming down the driveway that she did not recognize she saw men get out of the car. She did not recognize either one of them, and something about this spelled trouble. She said that she ran into her parents' bedroom, and she tried to get on the opposite side of the bed next to the wall and try to get under the bed. She was only able to get partially under the bed. She heard a rap on the door, and the next thing she heard was the front door being burst open. She then heard steps in the house. She then heard them come in the very room that she was in. By the grace of God, they did not see her. They took the things they wanted to take and they were out of there. By this time, she was emotionally distraught. She called her daddy and all she could get out was something about somebody's in the house. With great speed, he got back home, and Melanie ran into his arms, and the first thing she said was, Daddy, when those men were in this house, all I could think about was that I wasn't a Christian. All I could think about was that I had not obeyed the gospel of Christ. She thought her time was about to run out. What are we going to sing in a moment? Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter well. Almost but lost. In 1 Peter 4, 2, Peter talks about the rest of your time. I don't know how much that is for you. I don't know how much it is for me. The rest of our time. Granville Tyler. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Well, maybe not. It, he's one of the heroes in my part of the country. Granville Tyler had finished a gospel meeting once in a place, and there was a young man there that uh, had never obeyed the gospel. And he was about to graduate from high school. Brother Tyler, as he was finishing up that night and saying goodbyes, he said, well, young man, I sure have enjoyed being with you. He said, I, I just really have enjoyed spending time with you, getting to know you a little bit. He said, uh, he said what's your plans? He said, well, he said, uh, 
about to graduate from high school, then I plan to go to college. He said, oh, college is a great thing. You can learn a lot of good things there. He said, what then? He said, well, you know, I'm kind of hoping maybe while I'm in college I might meet somebody that I want to marry. And he said, somewhere in there, he said, uh, I'll, I'll need to get a job. He said, oh, yeah. He said, you'll need to get a job, all right. And he said, what then? He said, well, after that, I'd like to get married. He said, oh, I, I, I miss my wife. I loved her so much. He said, marriage is a wonderful thing. It'll bless you so much. He said, what then? He said, well, I guess I'll just, you know, Brother Tyler, I'll, I'll work all those years, you know, and everything. He said, then it'll be about time to retire. And he said, what then? He said, uh, well, well, Brother Tyler, I guess sometime after retirement, it'll uh, be about time to die. And Brother Tyler said, and what then? You see, ultimately, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Just after death, what then? We want to encourage you with everything we've got in us tonight to come to the Lord. Us preachers, we do this for a reason. We do what we do for a reason. It's because we love souls. We love you. We're going to sing a song now to encourage you. I think we've adequately taught you what the Bible says tonight. If you need to respond to the gospel tonight, to join the souls who have already decided to make Jesus their Lord, would you come while we stand as we sing?